Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 6, verses 44 through 59. This is Jesus speaking. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Ron, and I have the honor of introducing our guest speaker today, Kento Ayer. Uh, I'm excited for this for a few reasons. Let me, let me go back in time to the year 2008. Me, a very young, youthful, young teacher, young, uh, young, young, uh, and I taught at uh, Lester Middle School, and in walked a young eighth grader named Kento Ayer. Kento was in my eighth grade English class. So if you're feeling a little old today, take that, okay? So here, Kento comes in. He, I was his teacher in eighth grade English, and Kento was an excellent student in eighth grade. He was this tall, honestly. Uh, I moved to the high school, and Kento, I think you PCS, right? And then you came back for your 11th grade year. And Kento was in my 11th grade AP Lang class as well. So I saw Kento as an eighth grader and then as an 11th grader. And really, this kid is a top-notch student, bright, respectful, et cetera, et cetera. He thought I was great. I, you know, what, what's there not to like? Well, Kento graduates high school, goes to college, and he, on his return back to visit his family, his family lives here, uh, he would stop in the classroom and tell me his updates, what's going on. And during that time, he talked about his involvement with the ministry uh, crew. And seeing, hearing his talk about his passion for Jesus and his passion for people, it was really infectious. And then one time he pops up here and he's married, stationed here. Now Kento is a young Marine officer and stationed in, in uh, Okinawa, comes to Pillar, and it just was really exciting to see him that way. Then he becomes an elder, and so Kento and I spent a lot of time together um, just hearing his heart for ministry, his heart for Jesus, and his heart for you. 
Uh, he, he and Becca run a an missional community on Leicester, and hearing what that is going, how he ministers to people, his heart for you once again. And he is a great young man, not so young anymore, but neither are you. And, uh, and so I, I, this week as I was preparing uh, for an intro, I went back to 2012, letters of recommendation. I save every one of them. And I found Kento's, the one I wrote for Kento for college. And in there, outside of his academic uh, accolades, I wrote in there, I said, in addition to that, uh, he's involved in his spiritual life and church and seeking growth toward his spiritual ministry. And I, I had a line that said, having a student from 8th grade to 11th grade, you can really see maturity in those three years. Well, let me say this. In, from 8th grade to now, I could really see maturity in Kento in 13 years. That's how long I've known this guy. Longer than anybody in this room, I've known this guy. And it is with great honor that I introduce him. You ready for this? For his first sermon ever. No pressure. I would be nervous, but no, no, no pressure. So, Kento, come on up here, and please join me if, with a warm welcome for Kento in his first sermon. Well, good morning, Pillar family. I appreciate that, Ron. Um, that was all him. Um, he definitely showed his age there. So, as you guys know, he's the uh, most wise of the elders. So, the wisest and the oldest, yeah. Um, anyways, as, as Ron said, my name's Kento. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Pillar, and I, I have the honor and privilege of bringing the Word of God to you guys this morning. Um, so let's pray, and we'll go and get started. Dear God, Heavenly Father, I just pray that um, no matter what we went through this week, no matter the circumstances of life, that we can come into this place and have our eyes focused on you and uh, allow our ears to be open to hear the Word and what is spoken to us Soften our hearts, Lord, to the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word, and remind us that we are loved um, children who are adopted into your family. God, I pray that I, I can decrease and that you increase in, in this sermon, and that really ultimately what people see is the truth of the gospel, and they see more of you. Um, thank you so much, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So in the first year of our marriage, Becca and I still lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, our college hometown in North Carolina State, Go Wolfpack. Um, and uh, during football season, we would consistently wait in football lines for hours. Uh, we were committed for hours on end. Um, and so Becca would often pack me some sort of snack to munch on while, I was, while we were in line. And during this particular time, we were on a healthy snack kick. And I don't know, I guess it was first year marriage things of, you know, pursuing goals together. And I was also trying to be supportive, you know. So this particular time, my snack for the day was a whole bag of raw broccoli florets. So there I am munching on a bag of broccoli, raw broccoli in this football line while everybody else around me is eating their Bojangles chicken tenders and their french fries. And like I said, I'm just trying to be supportive. So I'm not necessarily enjoying it, but I'm eating the broccoli. The thing is, you see, even with something as wholesome or filling as broccoli, a bag of raw broccoli, it was still going to leave me hungry in two hours or so, the length of this sermon. I'm just kidding. Um, and let's be honest, we all know that once I crossed the threshold of that stadium, I made a beeline to the closest counter to get myself a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. But even with that pillar, like any meal we eat, we're always going to be left hungry and looking for the next meal. So today in our passage, we'll see and we'll find just that. When we seek what is earthly, we'll constantly be left hungry. 
And Jesus used tangible examples in our narrative. He used those earthly things to show everyone that he was sovereign over all things and that life can only be found in him. So for you note takers out there, for our main point today, we'll find that life is found only when we are sustained by, by our sovereign King Jesus. I'll say that again. Life is found only when we are sustained by our sovereign King Jesus. So today we're going to talk through three characteristics of our walk with Jesus. Three S's. Seeking, stumbling, and sustained. Seeking, seeking only the earthly blessings, pleasure, comfort, and satisfaction from God. And that's going to carry us from verses 1 through 15. Stumbling, stumbling and toiling through life as we rely on our own strength and will. And that's going to carry us from verses 16 to 21. And sustained. Sustained fully and completely by Jesus, who is the bread of life. And that'll carry us from verses 22 to 59. So obviously we got a large chunk of passage, but um, as we break it up into these three S's, hopefully we can work through it together and um, it'll, it'll be good. So our first point, seeking. Seeking only the earthly blessings, pleasure, comfort, and satisfaction from God. So we'll point to our passage here. Jesus and his boys, as John Ransom likes to say, are back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're on the northeastern side here, um, and uh, if you remember through the passages leading up to here or the chapters leading up to this, they're bouncing between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee, and they're kind of all in this region. Um, So they're putting in some serious miles. And wherever Jesus is going with his disciples, there is a large crowd of people following him. Um, So it's, it's pretty crazy. And during this particular time, the the passage tells us that we're in Passover. So it's a significant historical event for the Jews as it marks the last of the 10 plagues that God brought to Egypt when the Israelites were in captivity. So for those who aren't familiar or for those who maybe are familiar, in this plague, um, God would bring death to the firstborn in Egypt, but he passed over every house of an Israelite who painted blood over their doorpost of an, un, uh, of an unblemished lamb. So in this sign in and of itself, it was a foreshadowing or it was pointing to Jesus being the perfect lamb. Um, but also, this was a sign of God's provision and protection for the Israelites in that time. And this was the 10th of of 10 plagues, and God uses multiple different signs, multiple different plagues to show to Pharaoh that he is the one true God. So again, anyways, you guys can see why Passover was significant to these people. Literally, it was founded, Passover was founded, and the recognition of Passover for them was founded on a sign from God. And so this is the second of three mentions of Passover in the book of John. So we continue in in our narrative, and We see that a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Again, like I said, now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So we we pause here and, and we recognize that Jesus is the one that looks up and notices the crowd. Jesus sees the crowd first, and Jesus makes the first engagement of how to care for these people. He turns to his disciples, and he's like, how are we going to feed these guys coming up here? We love because he first loved us. Jesus always makes the first engagement. So again, Jesus asks this question to his disciples to test him, uh, and obviously he's not asking because he's fielding the disciples for a plan of action or what we're going to do. 
He's asking them to test them because Jesus knows already what he's going to do. Philip responds in the best way that he can, and he's like, Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread couldn't feed these people. So you see, a denarius in that time was a singles day wage. So all Philip was really saying is, 200 days worth of work is not going to feed these people. He wasn't really necessarily making a literal evaluation there. He was just expressing and showing the magnitude of the task at hand. And he, again, he was just highlighting the magnitude of it. You can imagine the disciples were probably super overwhelmed. Something along the lines of not even the 10 family marts or Lawson's within the two-mile radius of here could feed every single one of you guys in here. Just an exaggeration, right? We continue and we see that the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Matthew's account, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, tells us that, uh, or it says, plus women and children. So we know scholars typically agree or believe that there's about 20,000 people present on this mountainside. So just to put this into perspective for you guys, um, that's like taking pretty much every single active duty service member on this island and putting them all in one congregation, one location, and sticking them all on Merrick Park on Kadena. You can imagine, like, that's a lot of people in one place, and that is a crazy task at hand to feed all these people. So now, it's like, oh yeah, I can definitely see why the disciples are freaking out. They're probably running around like crazy. How are we going to feed these people? So in their efforts, in their pursuits, and in their attempts, they find five loaves and two fish among the crowd with a boy. I've heard it put before that it's like they find a lunch among the crowd, right? And so it looks like five loaves and two fish, what is this going to do to feed all of these people? But guess what? Jesus takes it, he gives thanks, and creation in response to the voice of the creator is multiplied. And here we see Jesus completes a miraculous sign and provides for the people, provides for this crowd. Even to the point of 12 baskets left over, the narrative shows us that they have leftovers. Um, And so again, we talked about there's a ton of people here, but all the people are fed, they're satisfied, and there's still leftovers from this. We see that this clearly points to the abundance of Jesus's provision. And so in response to this, right, the people are like, oh man, this is the prophet. This is the prophet that we've been looking for. This is the guy that we've heard about, that we've talked about in all of our history. Specifically referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19, here Moses alludes to a prophet to come. In that passage, Moses is speaking about Jesus. But we know Jesus is a truer and better Moses. We know Jesus is more than just a prophet. But again, this motivated the people. Seeing these signs, seeing this provision motivated the people, but only for the earthly. They were also, so only for the earthly and the provision that uh, was provided through the abundance of food. And again, they were, they were also likely seeking Jesus as a means to overthrow the oppressive Roman rule at the time. So again, their, their mindset and their focus is on the earthly. I don't know about you guys, but if you can relate to me on this, but sometimes Becca, my wife, will ask me to go snag something from upstairs if we're about to leave, or, you know, she'll say something along the lines of, oh, it's on the dresser, can you go grab fill in the blank? I'd be like, okay, I will gladly walk up the stairs before we leave and go get something from the dresser. You know, full disclosure, most often it is not in, in gladness or hum- humility. I begrudgingly walk up the stairs to go find this thing she asked me to go find. So I, I go up there, I go upstairs, and I'm looking for the life of me. She, I'm looking exactly where she told me it is. I'm looking based off of the description or exactly what she told me it is. And guess what? 
I don't see it. Yeah, it's not there, right? I can't find it. It's not there. And so I run back downstairs, and I'm like, look, Becca, that thing's not there. I'm telling you. And she's like, look, Kento, that thing is there. I'm telling you it is. And so sure enough, she walks up the stairs, and while she's walking up the stairs, I'm like, I'm telling you it's not up there. I know I'm going to be right. Lo and behold, seconds later, she's walking back down the stairs with exactly in her hand what I was looking for, exactly in the place where she said it was. And in that moment, I'm, I'm just like, oh, I mean, I, I just couldn't see it. Like, I, it, sometimes it's unexplainable, right, guys? Like, you just can't see those things. <laughs> We're like this with Jesus in our lives, aren't we? He's right in front of us, but we just don't see him sometimes. We see only what we want to see. We have our own agenda, and we're seeking the fulfillment of that agenda. And that's why being part of a church family is so important, too, because we need someone to walk alongside of us who can see for us, who can show us Jesus when we're clearly blind and we can't see what's right in front of us. So, Pillar, let's consider some questions for ourselves this morning to see how we are or aren't seeking Jesus. Is the appearance of our church, the production value, the quality, adding numbers, competing with other churches on this island, more important than simply being with Jesus and seeing Jesus? In your MC, is the satisfaction of being cool or relevant or smart, persuasive in the context of your neighbors or with your friends, is that more important than seeing Jesus himself? Or MC leaders, is having the perfect lesson plan or the perfect MC who follows every letter of, of the law of your instruction and guidance that you're giving to your MC, is that more important than seeing Jesus? Or in the workplace, is the pursuit of blessing, comfort, recognition, pleasure, satisfaction, is that guiding your thoughts and pursuits? Or is it seeing Jesus as the most important? At home, in your neighborhood, in your cul-de-sac, at your local neighborhood park, is seeking the adoration or recognition from other parents around you because of how awesome your parenting is and how well-behaved your kids are. Maybe they're not too well-behaved, I don't know. Um, in turn, does that point to how awesome you are as a parent? Is that more important than seeing Jesus? For, non, for my non-believing friends in the room, how is Jesus pursuing you? Like we said earlier in our, in our passage, Jesus makes the first engagement because he loves us. He loves you, friend. How is he engaging you? Is he right in front of you and you just keep missing him? So with that, we move into our second point. It's the second S, stumbling. Stumbling and toiling through life as we rely on our own strength and will. So back to the passage here. We're moving into this next section, and we see we're going into the evening. Jesus withdrew from the mountain. The disciples go down to the shore, to the Sea of Galilee, down from the mountain, and they get into the boat, get into their boats, and they make their journey across the sea to Capernaum, which is on the northwestern side of the sea. Now, remember, we talked about earlier, right now, we were on the northeastern side of the sea. They're making their way to the northwestern side of the sea, um, where Capernaum is. That distance was about five to six miles. And in the narrative, we see that they've been rowing for about three to four miles. So they're halfway to their destination. They're right in the middle of the storm, right in the middle of their journey. It's dark. It's stormy. There's no sight of land. And you can imagine they probably feel pretty frightened. They probably feel pretty hopeless. 
And then on top of that, naturally, they're frightened when they see Jesus, or at the time, they're like, I don't know if that's Jesus, randomly coming on the middle of the ocean, or of the sea, excuse me, during this storm. The account in Matthew actually tells us that they literally, literally thought Jesus was a ghost. So again, they're probably super stressed. I, would, I know I would be. As Jesus approaches the boat, he tells them, it is I, do not be afraid. Here in the Greek, it is I was the phrase ego eimi, which in other contexts of the Bible, this is translated to mean I am. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the sermon. But again, this alludes to God's self-identification of his divinity. We look back to passages like Exodus 3.14, for those who aren't familiar, this is the burning of the bush when God appears to Moses. And God is revealing his divinity to Moses here and tells him, he literally tells Moses, I am who I am. Jesus is doing the same thing here. We see parallels. We see what's going on here. He has sovereignty over creation, so fire burning a bush that's not actually burning. And then Jesus here walking on water, not affected by the storm, not affected by the wind, not affected by the waves. He's showing that he is sovereign over creation because he is God. After this statement that Jesus makes, Matthew's account actually tells us that Peter asked Jesus, if it is you, Lord, command me to come to you. So Peter steps out, he starts walking to Jesus on the water, and he has a small moment where he's fixated on Jesus. But it is then diminished by doubt when he notices and sees the raging storm around him. From there, he then begins to sink and he cries out, and Jesus rescues him. Jesus then says to Peter, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? We move forward back into our, our passage here, and we see the, the text literally says that they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. So the uh, declarative, I am, that Jesus made brought peace and gladness to the disciples. And again, Matthew tells us that actually once Jesus gets in, the storm actually ceases. So we see that Jesus, the creator, has power, again, over the wind and the waves. And even amidst the storm, he provides calmness and ultimately gets the disciples to where they need to go. So with this, let's consider these questions for our lives. Pillar, what fear are you struggling with right now? What storm are you in the middle of where you feel like you're toiling and you're paddling, making slow, grueling progress on your own, and you feel like you're right smack in the middle of your journey all by yourself, by your own strength and will? How have you been relying on your own strength and will through this storm to get you through this storm? For me personally, I've had my own storm in the workplace, my own difficulties. There's been this need to confront an individual about issues in my shop, um, that have been specifically created by this person. My personality, I tend to run the other direction from conflict, and I choose to desire peace over pursuing conflict even when it's necessary. This past week, I've had moments of trying to run out of that storm by the quickest means possible, imagining how can I avoid this hard conversation, how can I avoid doing what I know I need to do just to change my circumstance, just to get out of whatever is going on. Thankfully, by God's strength, I was able to still have this conversation, but even out of this conversation and the general feeling within my shop, there is still a lot of mental and emotional drain and darkness. There is brokenness where I work. 
And it really just feels like I'm in the middle of this sometimes, and I have this tendency, this sinful tendency to think that it's by my own strength, by my own will, by my own strength in leadership, or by my, by my own strength in, or knowledge of advice, that I can make everything all better, make everything good. So when I read this, and when I tell this to you guys, I'm, I'm pointing at myself too, because this is a reminder for me as well. Just like Peter in Matthew's account, we should be challenged to step out and look to Jesus as we stumble through this storm that we call life. And even while we stumble, think about this. How can you cling to Jesus and be comforted by his reassurance to you of I am? Because his declarative brings peace and gladness to you amidst the storm. Growing up as a kid, we would go to my grandparents' house in Kentucky. My dad's from Kentucky. Um, and we would go during the summer or winter from, for Christmas, depending on what time of year it was. They had horses, so they have a good amount of land. It's a beautiful place, rolling hills, uh, green grass. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid growing up, so that one place was like continuity for me. It was like the place that stayed the same. Uh, and I have so many good memories there going back to visit my grandparents. So in the summer, they would have some pretty impressive thunderstorms. And in the back of their house, they have a screened-in porch. One of my favorite things about that screened-in porch was getting to sit inside of the screened-in porch during a thunderstorm, hear the thunderstorm, hear the thunder, hear the rain, see the rain, hear the wind, recognize the presence of that storm, but just sit in general sense of calmness in the storm. I'm not necessarily trying to run or get out of that storm because the porch is I, I trust that porch, right? I, I trust the protection that is providing me in that moment, and it brings me a sense of calmness and peace. Pillar, that's how I want to be during the storms and trials of life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying pain does not exist. It absolutely still exists. The trials of this life are hard, and I'm not discounting that. The storms and trials of life can be hard. But, like standing in a porch without a cover or screen, back to my example in the workplace, I can, and I have already definitely had thoughts of how can I run as fast as I can, how can I get out of this storm as quickly and easily as possible? How can I avoid conflict and avoid hard but necessary conversations? You guys can imagine this, right? Yesterday, it was pretty stormy, it was rainy, and I know even in the different times where we went out and about, my immediate thought was how can I move from the front of my house to my car as quickly as I can without getting wet? That's always our tendency and our, our desire when rain or storm or something is around us, right? But despite those tendencies to run, our response in those storms, our hope and what we cling to should be so countercultural to how the world handles trials and difficulties of life. Why? Because we can experience and recognize the presence of the storm, but Jesus is with us. And when we have confidence in Jesus and understanding of the gospel, then guess what? Jesus is all we need. Like Peter, like we saw with Peter, right? When he was fixated on Jesus, he was literally able to walk on water during this storm towards Jesus, and the storm around him was a non-factor in his forward progress to the Savior. But once he noticed the wind and the waves, once he doubted, that's when he began to sink. John 16, Jesus tells us, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, overcome the world. And again, right? Jesus even tells us that we're going to have tribulation, we're going to have storms in life, as believers, 
that's just part of it. We know that that is going to happen. But like Peter in that small moment, may we have peace and all live in a way where the storms of life are non-factors in our forward progress to the Savior. This brings us to our third and final point of sustained. Sustained fully and completely by Jesus, who is the bread of life. So as we move into the next section, we see that it's the next day. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been, or that they had, there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when we see this, other boats coming from Tiberias, all that means is that there are more people starting to show up, more people hearing about Jesus, more people seeking these signs, more people seeking maybe what Jesus can do for him, for them. We continue along, and they, they set out to find Jesus. They set out to go find Jesus and the disciples. And again, they make it to the other side of the sea, over to Capernaum, and they actually find him. And once they do, when they find him, they're like, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, for the food, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So here we see that Jesus once again points, to the, points out the intentions of the crowd and how they're seeking the wrong things. He speaks of how they're no longer seeking the signs. Jesus says, in the signs, when we say signs, as in the truth of how these signs point to his divinity. So like Ron preached a couple weeks ago, right? Seeking the sign itself. Seeking the comfort and satisfaction from the food and what it can provide. Seeking the sign itself and not really what the sign is pointing to, which is Jesus. And so they responded to Jesus um, and they're like, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And again, just multiple points throughout this, we see that the crowd focuses on the wrong things. We understand from historical context and in Jewish culture in general that there is a lot of weight to follow the law and do the works of God. And that parallel exists for us even today, right? There is sometimes, or there is this pressure that exists to do exactly what the law says and to be the best Christian that we can be and to follow every aspect of the law. Just like the, in their Jewish culture, there's a lot of weight that they place and they put in following the law and doing the works of God. Recall last week when John preached in chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is saying to a different group of people, you search the, scripture, the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And so in the same way, we see that happening right here. Same thing happening, right? They are looking for what they can do to have, and by their own strength, to have eternal life. And so, again, they respond, or Jesus answers them and says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what is the work of God, Pillar? The work of God is completed. Through Jesus, the work of God is complete leaving us no labor on our own required to be with the Father. We just need to believe in Jesus. 
And so we move forward, and what happens next is almost comical. I read through this, and I kind of laugh every time. But then I'm humbled because I think and I reflect on the fact that, hey, this is me in my own life. This is the tendency of my own heart. So what, what do they do? They literally look at Jesus and ask, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Why is this funny? Because keep in mind, guys, Most of these people here that are in front of Jesus, where were they just literally the day before? They're part of this crowd of 20,000 people and witnessed a miracle, witnessed the sign literally right in front of them. And they're back in front of Jesus and they're like, yeah, 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 that was cool. We're we're satisfied, we're full, but, but Jesus, what other sign do you do? It's crazy, right? But that's us, that's us. And so they're asking for another sign to have proof of Jesus' words, but it's right in front of them, and they don't see it. We continue, and we see that they uh, quote Scripture to Jesus, right? The Jewish people had this expectation of all the things the coming Messiah would do. They quote Scripture to Jesus. Right here, we see in verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They quote this to Jesus because, again, their expectation is that the coming Messiah could do the miracles of God to include raining manna from heaven again. But really, in in this miracle of God, it's, again, to satisfy their physical needs, satisfy their physical hunger, and they're short-minded and short-focused in this time. But in Jesus' gracious and patient response, He takes what the people know and remember in their history and tradition about manna, and he makes an example from it to show them that all along, it was just another sign. That manna coming down from heaven was just another sign. It was just another indicator pointing to the true bread from heaven. They continue on, and in response to this, you think by this point, it's like, oh man, they they definitely have to get it by now, right? But they don't. They say, give us this bread always. Here, still missing the point, still only seeking the physical bread to satisfy their earthly hunger. But Jesus, in his gracious and patient response, in the same way that he looks at us, he once again tells them and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now we're going to take a moment to pause and, and look at this I am statement. Um, and like I said earlier in the, in the sermon, here we are, I am. This statement here constitutes the first of seven metaphorical I am statements made by Jesus in the Gospel of John. Um, earlier in the Greek, we di- or earlier in the sermon, we discussed in the Greek and we talked about Jesus walking on the water saying, it is I, or ego eimi, I am. That was an absolute I am statement, not tied to any sort of metaphor, is literally Jesus just saying, I am God, I am right? But here we see Jesus make a statement and he ties it to a metaphor. I am the bread of life. Throughout John, there are six other instances of this similar metaphorical I am statements, which brings us to a total of seven. So I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. How many fingers am I holding up here? Seven, right? So there's something I want to emphasize and bring focus here with the number of seven. As you go through the Bible, and I hope that you guys have seen this before, I am personally amazed by the detail and intricacy of our Father God and how he works that detail and weaves it into every aspect of his, of his word. 
And so the number seven was typically held as meaning, completeness, or divine fulfillment. Jesus makes seven I am statements. In every single individual statement, he's pointing to himself as sustainer. But guess what? He makes seven statements, and as a whole, Jesus is purposefully showing that he is the divine fulfillment, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, Jesus is sustainer, Jesus is sovereign king. So back to our text here. Still, the Jews grumbled about Jesus. Time and time again, Jesus is patient with them. Jesus is loving. But the Jews still grumbled about Jesus. And it's kind of funny when we look at this because it is just like their ancestors, just like their fathers before them. Over and over again, even amidst God's provision, they still grumbled. So Jesus just keeps repeating the statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes will have eternal life. And again, Jesus even points out and brings up how their fathers, their ancestors, they ate manna and they died. They literally ate bread that fell down from heaven, but guess what? They still died because this wasn't the true bread from heaven. This wasn't the bread of life. Jesus continues on and, you know, initially when you read it, he's like, oh, Jesus, you kind of make a weird statement. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. All Jesus is doing there is he's foreshadowing to his death on the cross. And it's by and through that truth that we can be sustained and given true life. So like the Jews that Jesus was speaking to in this passage, let's take a look in our own lives, right? How has Jesus looked at you again and again and again and has performed these signs in your life again and again and again and has shown his provision to you again and again and again and has told you that he is the bread of life and yet you still don't find sustainment in him? How has he very purposefully protected you or has orchestrated your circumstances to bring you to a place better than you have even or better than you ever imagined it or planned it for yourself in the first place? I know I can look back at multiple instances in my life and say that without a shadow of a doubt that God was working intricately in every moment of my life. How has... Sorry, I'm getting lost. Oh, here we go. What have you chalked up in the past as a weird coincidence when reality it was God working very clearly and explicitly in your life because he loves you because he's drawing near to you we see earlier in in the scripture here Jesus actually says whoever comes to me I will not cast out you friend come to Jesus and he will receive you he will give you life he will give you full sustainment of life How are you seeking what is temporary to satisfy for all eternity in only a way that Jesus himself can? Jesus tells and points to our souls. He tells us that we need to be fed and nourished. So that that weird statement that we talked about, Jesus says to feed on my flesh, drink my blood. All Jesus is saying there is that our souls need to be fed and nourished through him. How many times in a given week, church, Outside of here on Sunday, are you opening your Bible and feeding and satisfying your soul on our Lord Jesus? How can we continue to look upon King Jesus and see his glory throughout the week? Through this book, Pillar, you need to open it. You need to read it. Spend time with him. Read God's word. 
Pray to God and look upon Jesus. Be in community throughout the week with one another and point each other back to the cross, back to Jesus. His body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. Our full and complete sustainment in life is found in acknowledgement of this completed work on the cross. It's not just a one-time acknowledgement we find at the point of redemption where we come from death to life because we believe, we believe in Jesus, but it's an acknowledgement of Jesus' completed work, the good news of the gospel. It's a continual practice. It's working restoration in our souls throughout our every day, throughout our every week, throughout every point in our life. And we need a constant reminder, right? I know I do. Until the day when Jesus comes back again and all peace and order is restored to this world, to this broken world, by its original intended design. The original intended design, you ask? It's life found only when we are sustained by our sovereign King Jesus. So, Pillar, as we close, remember, just like the crowd coming up the mountain, Jesus looks upon you and he says, you need to be fed. Just like the disciples in the boat, Jesus comes to you in the middle of your storm, in the middle of your darkness, and he looks at you and says, I am. And he brings you comfort and peace during the storm. And just like the crowd seeking manna, Jesus looks at you and tells you, I am the bread of life. In his grace, kindness, and mercy, Jesus knew you would question. Jesus knew I would question, right? Jesus knew we would seek the wrong things. Jesus knew we would stumble in life. But guess what, Pillar? This is the good news of the gospel. King Jesus, in your place, stumbled up Calvary, carried your cross, nailed to that, he was nailed to that cross, and looked on you with compassion and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In light of what Jesus has done on our behalf, Pillar, how will our lives and how will the life of Pillar Church reflect this truth? Pillar, let us seek Jesus. Let us stumble to the feet of Jesus and let us be sustained by Jesus because, family, he is the bread of life. Now, Ethan's gonna come and lead us in a time of confession. Um, Just take this this time and this moment when he's leading us through in prayer and reflect and think about those points, those times in your life when Jesus has clearly shown that he is working, he's showing himself to you and also just praise and recognize that he is our bread of, he is the bread of life. He sustains us and just continue to stumble towards him. Ethan, please come.